Hey, glad you're here this morning. I'm Bill Brown, as uh, Jason intimated, if you were listening to his prayer. And um, uh, it's good to be back with you. I'm, I've been president of two Christian colleges over in Dayton, Tennessee, at Bryan College, and up near Dayton, Ohio. I'll stay in the Daytons uh, with Cedarville University. And uh, we're segueing out of that. And I've been good friends with Michael Easley for a number of years. He's needed a lot of therapy, and so I've been grateful to be able to provide that. <laughs> provide that for him over a, a long time, and I uh, love coming here. We love living in Tennessee, and uh, uh, particularly after this winter in Ohio, so uh, we're seeing where the Lord's going to lead us next, but it's great to be with you with you today. It's been a great study in Ephesians. I hope that um, you've been growing as a result of that. The reality of the Apostle Paul being in prison in Rome and hearing rumors of some false teaching and the church in Colossae. So he writes them a letter, we call it the letter to the Colossians, to kind of address some of the the teaching that's been going on and the applications that were awry as well. And he begins to think that maybe he should write a much broader letter to nail down some of the truths of Christianity. And so we have what we call the letter to the Ephesians, which is just that. And he also writes Philippians and Philemon during this uh, particular prison stay. And so what we have in Ephesians is really a treatise on what it means to be a Christian, what Jesus Christ actually did, what God is up to through the coming of Christ, and then how these Gentiles fit into this plan that has been encumbered by the Jews for all these centuries. How do they fit in? And the book is evenly divided, pretty much. The first part is a lot of doctrine. And then there's this huge therefore, beginning chapter 4, and Paul begins to describe how we apply it in the various facets of our lives in a practical way. Because everything that we do must come out of what we understand to be true. And that being the case, we are moving through to the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians today. Verses 19 to 22. Uh, Chapter 2 is glorious. The first 10 verses talking about what it means to understand God's grace. Dead in sin, but God stepped in through his grace and mercy and love. Through Christ died for our sins. And now we can have eternal life, forgiveness for sins as a result of that. It's grace the unique feature of Christianity that other religions just don't have, don't understand. Not of works, nothing that we've done, we can't boast. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then he goes into describing how Jesus Christ came when he died. Not only did he die for the sins of the individual, but he tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. These Gentile believers, after all, in Ephesus, because he spent well over two years there teaching. And people from all over Asia Minor, we call it Turkey today, would come and listen to Paul as he taught there at the school of Tyrannus in Ephesus. Helping them understand how that dividing wall is gone and they are not second-class citizens in God's economy. And then... In verses 19 to 22, he puts a cap on that with three incredible metaphors, examples for them to understand what it means and who they are in 
Christ. So that's where we're going to be, those verses, those four verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. Any, any culture, like any person, if you lose a vision, a view of life that's bigger than yourself, you become very self-obsessed. And I think that what we find in our culture in many ways goes back to a big version of the Stockholm Syndrome. Back on August 23, 1973, Jan Erik Olsen decided he'd rob a bank in Stockholm. Went in to rob the bank. The police came and surrounded the bank before he got out. So he took four hostages and he held them and there was a standoff for six days. And those hostages, over the period of time, turned not against him, but for him. In fact, one of them, named uh, Kristen Enmark, got on the phone with the prime minister of Sweden and berated him for not showing more compassion toward the hostage taker. In fact, afterwards, they even refused to testify against him. And they refused to be rescued in a timely manner as well. As I said, this is called the Stockholm Syndrome, where hostages over a period of time, because of the environment that's created by uh, the hostage taker, they turn their allegiance and their understanding and see everything around them through the eyes of this individual. Our culture has been held hostage for a long time, and the values being we worship things, we worship pleasure, we worship ourselves. And as a result, we identify everything by those values, and which means that we don't see the big picture. We don't see truth. We don't see God even, except maybe as part of the furniture of our lives. So what? Well, the reality is, as Paul is going to talk to the Ephesians here, is that how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see the world is crucial to who you are and who you're becoming. Now, in Facebook, tell how obsessed we are. People are always trying to identify themselves any way they want. About a month and a half ago, I actually wrote an article on this. Uh, Facebook decided they would give people more choices when it came to the question of gender. It used to be male or female. They gave everybody 56 different choices as to how you would self-identify your gender. And guess what? People were enraged, not because there were 56. They thought that wasn't enough. People would say, my self-identity and gender is not up there. You need to add this one, add this one, add this one. So they finally gave in, and it's just blank, and you put it whatever you want. However you see yourself psychosexually, you put it in there. And if, if you look at Facebook, people identify themselves by what character in Harry Potter they're most like, or what character in Jane Austen they're most like, and so on. I mean, we have this obsession. We think that we can change our lives and make it better if we identify ourselves in certain ways. But the reality is there's only one person who's going to identify us that really matters. And that's the one who made us and the one who redeemed us. And that's the only truth. When we recognize that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy our deepest longings except our Lord himself. So breaking out of that is the key. 
Being able to see the big picture is crucial. That's why God speaks through his word to us, and that's why we have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us and around us to do just that on a daily basis. We need to push that reset button every single day to see the world truly and accurately. The Gentile Christians, as the Apostle Paul describes them, at one time you were far off. But now you have been brought near. That's chapter 2, verse 13. They've been brought near. It doesn't matter how you identify yourself. What does God think? And how does he identify me? How is he identifying them? When each person stands before God, the scenario is going to be such as whether or not God knows you. In fact, if we read in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 7, People will stand before God and say, oh, I did all these great things for you in your name. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. I never knew you because you never knew me. That's a great warning, isn't it? Because we can do things for God and not actually know him. Now, I was like that. I grew up. I wasn't very religious. I was interested in basketball. I was going into the space program. That was my life. And in my uh, uh, senior year of high school, I went and got some free pizza at this uh, youth gathering. And the guy there shared Christ. So I got free pizza and Christ all in the same meeting, which is great. And I haven't gotten over that yet, the Christ part. I got over the pizza pretty good. It was not really good pizza. But, but the reality of who Jesus Christ was just hit me like a tsunami. Because I, I'd had my life, I was doing my stuff, and there's God. His love for me through Christ. I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed. I got some bad advice soon after that. People telling me that, you know, you're a Christian now, therefore you've got to do this and this and this and this. You've got to dress like this and this and this and this. You can go to this church, but not this church. You've got to vote this way, etc. And then my life degenerated a little bit more into sin management. A lot of you are right there, right? You know, my life is how good or how bad I'm dealing with sin. But then when I learned and recognized it is the person of Jesus Christ, the greatest commandment is to love him with our whole being, which overflows to us loving the people around us. That's true freedom. That's true freedom. And everything that we're going to see in this passage here is just going to be absolutely scandalous at the time. To us, it's a nice little verse to read. But at the time, it was amazing, overwhelming, and just sideways to the way people looked at life in the world. When you become a believer, life changes. You become a part of God's family forever. Your identity changes immediately. It's activated immediately. You don't have to dial an 800 number. I mean, your identity is activated immediately when you come to Christ. And that's just awesome. He's going to give us three pictures here. He's going to focus on his kingdom, on his family, and on his worship. And show how the Ephesian Gentile believers in all of us, in the legacy of their faith, are identified in each one of those. And those are the ones that matter. Okay, you ready? All right, let's dig in the, the passages themselves. You'll see on the side screens I'll have some uh, different things up to help us go through the passage. 
Ephesians 2, begin reading in verse 19. Consequently, he says, as a result of Jesus Christ tearing down this dividing wall, consequently, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with all God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. All right, let's walk our way through this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. That's how the Gentiles saw themselves on the fringes, on the outside. The word foreigners is actually the word xenos. Christians kind of invented a word called philozenias. Now, you're familiar with Philadelphia, love of the brothers. Philozenias is love of strangers. And Christians became pretty well known for that. Christianity actually invented the word Philadelphia, love of brothers. Philozenias is often translated in the Bible as hospitality, but that's kind of a calm way of seeing the scandal that it actually was. In fact, in, in the first few centuries, people would make fun of Christians. The stranger would come into town. You needed a place to stay, go find a Christian. They'll let you stay with them. They'll feed you even. They thought it as humorous, but Christians saw it as who they were. Christians in those first centuries were so different from everybody else because they cared deeply for the people around them because they knew how God cared for them through Christ, and Christ gave them that example to reach out and to care for those who had desperate needs. Fella Xenias, love of strangers. It's somebody that's in a country, like if you go and visit a foreign country, you are a xenos there. You're a stranger there. You're an alien there. You're just visiting. You have no rights and no privileges. The second word that he has there, he refers to them as strangers. This is the word that actually means somebody who may live in the land, but they're on a green card. They really don't have many rights or privileges. They're just there. And again, that's how the Gentiles saw themselves. God's been doing all these great things, and we're on the outside. I mean, those of you who have been to Jerusalem, you've seen pictures of the temple area. Around on the outside, you have the court of what? The Gentiles. It was more of a bazaar. That's where Jesus ran out the money changers. That's where the Gentiles were allowed to go, and there were signs up. In Latin and in Greek, that said, if a Gentile goes past this sign, he can be executed. Read Acts 21, where you see this kind of worked out. They were serious. And there was even the court of the, the women. Now, you women had a little place where you could go too. But the holiest places were reserved for the men, the Jewish men. And so they understood that they were always on the fringes, always on the outside. Most religions do this, by the way. Even among Christians, where we slice and dice and we divide. But Jesus Christ came, and through his death, divisions are destroyed. How often, how often do we read, neither male nor female, bond nor free, barbarian, Scythian, that all of them are gone. Jesus constantly lived it out, talking to Samaritans, talking to women. Scandal after scandal after scandal. Why do these people want to be around Jesus? Because he was always around them. That's not how you're supposed to live a holy life. That's how God does it. I think it's a good idea. 
Jesus' death destroyed every division that we have, every alienation that we have with ourselves and with God and with other people. So in this text, we're going to see in God's kingdom, we're citizens. In God's family, we are members of the family. And when it comes to worship, this is an odd picture. He's going to have an abstract metaphor. We are part of the building itself. We are living stones. I don't mean Mick Jagger. I mean, we are living stones in this great temple that God is building. No longer aliens and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's, with God's people and also members of his household. The first is that we have citizenship with God's people. Full citizenship with God's people. The word is the word politoi. It means we're a citizen. Puts the assume in front of it. We are fellow citizens. It doesn't mean we're second-class citizens. You got your Jews and you got your Gentiles. No, we are fellow citizens. Same status, same rights, same privileges. Paul tells us in Philippians, the letter that he wrote soon after this, that our citizenship is where? In heaven. Your citizenship, he says, is in heaven. It's not this world. If you're trying to get ahead in this world, this is the wrong world to get ahead in. Your citizenship is in another world. That's where your passport is from. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors. We are representing our home country. And now we have the wonderful, wonderful opportunity, responsibility to share the message of reconciliation to the world. Representing our Lord. That's where our citizenship really is. That's why when I talk about vision, you got to get out of the Stockholm Syndrome and realize who we really are, what God really says about us. Because until we do that, and sometimes it's hard to break habitual thinking, until we do that, we will never be what God has called us to be in the broad sense of the word. Now, being a citizen is good. All the rights and privileges, you don't have to worry. All the, all the legal matters that go along with that is awesome. And you're a citizen of the United States, most of you. And you can go to the White House, where the president lives and works. Maybe, if, if you make an appointment and have clearance, you can get into the White House. But not very far into the White House, but you can get into the White House, escorted. I have a great picture, of, many of you have seen it, of John F. Kennedy when he was president in the Oval Office at that big, beautiful desk. And sitting inside the desk is his son, John John at the privileges of being the son. I have another picture of uh, President Obama in the Oval Office sitting there, and Michaela, she is creeping behind the couch, getting ready to jump out and scare him. She doesn't need to do that anymore, by the way. So. But getting ready to scare him, I think, now, I, if I did that, I'd be in big trouble, you know. But the idea is that you can be a citizen, you have great privileges, but if you're family... You are inside the circle. And if there's anything about Christianity that God wants you to know is that you are family. Now, I don't know what kind of family you have, but I think everybody knows what a good family is supposed to be like. One of my favorite stories is about Bart Starr when he was quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He was awesome, amazing. He's having a particularly good year in one year, and his son was in first grade, Bart Jr., actually. And his son would bring back papers, you know, and he'd draw pictures and so on, and the great quarterback would take them, oh, these are great, put them on the refrigerator like all of us, you know, and he'd give Bart Jr. a dime. 
That was real money back then, a dime. Well, back in those days, they didn't broadcast every single NFL game, just some of them. And the Packers went out to the West Coast to play the Rams. Rams actually used to be on the West Coast, right? And um, they got clobbered. The Packers played terrible. And Bart Starr played particularly poorly. Long fl- And it was broadcast nationwide. I mean, everybody saw it. Long flight back to Milwaukee, drive up to Green Bay. Bart Starr gets in. It's after midnight. Every- the house is dark. Gets into his bedroom, and on his pillow, there's a note. Dear Dad, I thought you played great. I love you, Bart Jr. And taped to the bottom were two dimes. There's something about being part of a family that makes it okay to fail. Because you know you're loved and accepted. It's okay. At least that's the family that God has introduced you to. It's okay. That's why we have a story like the prodigal son. It's okay. You're loved. You're accepted. And the reality is that when Jesus came and began to talk about God as Father, that was absolutely a scandal. Look at the Old Testament. See how many times God is referred to as Father. You won't find it much. And in some versions, not at all. God, God, God is the creator. He's the judge. He's the Lord of all. Father? In fact, in John chapter 5, the Jewish leader said, this man is committing blasphemy because he is calling God Father. But we find in the New Testament over 250 times Jesus called, God is called Father. Most of those are by Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. First word out of his mouth, Father, who art in heaven. I'm thinking, the apostle going, can we say that? Father. Father. I was speaking at the medical school up in Ohio. It was a great, great event. There were, it was the Islamic Medical Students Association and the Christian Medical Students Association. If you know anything about me, I like doing those kinds of things a lot. And the idea was I had 30 minutes to describe Christianity, and an Islamic scholar would follow along, and he would have 30 minutes to describe Islam, and then we'd take questions and answers. So I'm thinking, i got 30 minutes, you know, I don't want to make the most of my time. So I wanted to be able to communicate what was important, particularly for the Muslims. Forget the Christians, okay, I, I, they're okay. But I want to focus on the Muslims. Here. And by, by the way, do you you got 42,000 Muslims in Nashville? Mm. What are you doing about that, by the way? Um, but I, so I, I wanted to focus on the person of Jesus Christ as being God incarnate focus on the fact that we are sinful, that Muslims don't believe we're born in that way, uh, focus on grace, of course, which is essential, and focus on the fact that Jesus revealed God as Father. Well, the, the, the Islamic scholar got up after I spoke, and he said, the Quran gives 99 names for Allah, for God. Not one of them is Father. We cannot call Allah We cannot call God Father because that brings God down to the human level. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's the whole point. God took on human flesh so then he could die for us. For us. By the way, after that was over, I I 
went right over to the, the Muslim students and said, okay, tell me what you think. And he said, Christianity is awesome. We just never understood it before. It's great. By the way, did you know today that 10,000 Muslims are coming to Christ? Today and tomorrow and the next day all over the world. In fact, 77,000 people are coming to Christ today, every day. God's doing some great things. Now, in the United States and Western Europe, we're losing about 7,800 a day, people walking away from the faith. I think the Stockholm Syndrome also has a decaying effect on, on us. But a revival's coming here. Revival's coming. God is doing some awesome work. We're part of it. I'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. So the family, the family. He's telling them, you are part of the household of God. Isn't that awesome? You are part of the house. You are a son, a daughter of God. If that gets under your skin, you will never, ever be the same. Ever. All right. Thirdly, he changes the picture from you know, being a citizen and a family, and it goes to more abstract, and starts describing us as a building. It's not unusual. There's Old Testament. I'll read some of the Old Testament here in a second. There's some Old Testament, but it's a powerful, powerful analogy for them. Beginning in verse 20, he says, Now, he's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Notice how they're together, 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 together. He's pulling everybody together. So the third picture is a temple with all of God's people. That's who we are. That's where we're becoming. Citizens, children, and now stones in the temple of God. Now, the Jews knew temples. They worshipped in the temple. The temple was the only place where much of the law of God could be fulfilled. But the Ephesians knew temples too. In fact, in the 8th century was built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The princes, it was the temple to um, Artemis. And when the Romans came over uh, and took over, it became the uh, temple to Diana. Huge, four times as large as the Parthenon. 127 columns, 60 feet high. Huge. And so the Apostle Paul knows, because he was there, he saw it, and he would describe them as a, a living temple. God does not dwell in temples made by human hands, no matter how majestic, but in a living temple of us. He dwells within us and with us. It's awesome. Now the temple is in ruins. In fact, there's a picture we took when we were over there. Um, not much now. Uh, it's kind of decayed a little bit over the, over the years. Uh, and notice how, but notice how big those columns are. See the people standing there? I mean, those are absolutely huge, huge. But only God's temple will last forever. We are a building, he says, literally a temple in which all of Christ's followers are a part. And he's going to give four different parts of the temple here. The foundation, the cornerstone, the whole building, and then... Look at us as individual stones as well. Okay, foundation, cornerstone, whole building, 
and the single stone. He says they're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Seeing believers as as parts of a building, seeing God or the person of Jesus Christ as the, the foundation and cornerstone is not unusual. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, he says, you are God's building. In the Greek, it reads like this, you are God's building. His point is we are God's building. He says, that's a great analogy because we need each other. We need each other. Christ is the foundation in verse 11 there. Peter, 1 Peter has a a beautiful, beautiful analogy too. He calls us living stones. But he goes to the Old Testament and says, this is nothing new. He's going to quote from Isaiah 28, Psalm 18, and Isaiah 8. And this is what he says. Listen, this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. That's Christ. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The foundation of this building, Paul says, is the apostles and prophets. We'll hear more about them in chapter 3, verse 5, and in chapter 4, verse 11. But they were the ones with the, the great, great responsibility and privilege of being the first to deliver the message of grace through Jesus Christ to the world. And the church is built on them and their message. And but the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone, of course, is the most important part of the building back in those days. They were usually large. They probably made extra effort to make sure that it was flat, to make sure that all the angles were right, because everything about that building was going to be determined by the cornerstone. It identified the building and it determined the stability of the building itself. Modern cornerstones don't necessarily have that same role. But uh, they are for identity, though. You'll see cornerstones in buildings. It'll tell you what the building is and when the cornerstone was actually laid, how that building was being dedicated for identification purposes. But I think it's awesome that the cornerstone, as described here, is a person, Jesus Christ. It's not a tradition. It's not even the Bible. It's not follow these five pillars or fulfill these 12 steps. It is a person, the person of Jesus. Him, that's why we love him. We follow him. The passage goes on to say, in him, in him, again, that keep coming back again and again, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, four observations about this real quick. The building is still under construction. God is not finished. We're still being built. It's a present continuous tense here. Secondly, the building is alive. Sounds like science fiction, but it's theological truth. The building's alive. All the stones. We are living stones, Peter says. And the building grows together. I grow, you grow, we all grow. I mentioned earlier, I I get online and see what's happening around the world And this morning in Kenya, uh, worship service, people broke in, two worshipers were murdered. Other places that happened. That's today. 
today. A lot of places around the world just going to worship. Do you take your life in your own hands? That's because our identity is Christ. It's okay. But when that part of the body suffers, we should suffer too. We should recognize that. Together, not just here in this building, but around the world. Around the world. And then God dwells. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And then with us together. With us together. When I came to Christ, I shared with you, I, I had read the Bible a little bit. In fact, I read the New Testament, came to Christ. Before, I didn't get anything out of it. I came to Christ. The next week, I picked up that good news for modern man that I'd bought. And it's like the words jumped off the page. I know experientially what having the Holy Spirit in my life and what not having the Holy Spirit in my life is like. All of you as believers, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You don't have an external law that you have to follow. You have an internal guide. Internal guide. You have everything you need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. You can stuff it down. You can keep him from really having much influence in your life or you can allow him to be filling you, to give you insight into the word, into the world, into the service that he has for you. We grow together. We grow together. The Holy Spirit working in you and around you. Now, he talks about us being individual stones, but not individual stones that are just laying there. You know, here's some big stones. Well, that's, that's cool. You're a big, sturdy stone. He says, no, the stones are, as he says, joined together. And these ancient uh, masons would take these stones and make the most of them. They would carefully cut, chip, scrape, and file them so they would fit. They didn't have concrete, cement, excuse me. They had to fit together, fit it together well. And I think about the chipping and the cutting and the filing that goes on in my life and in your life. And sometimes it's painful. Some of you are going through some painful things right now in your life and your family. It's almost unbearable. The pain is so great. But as Chuck Swindoll reminds us, whenever anything like this enters our lives, we know first that it's gone through the hands of God first. It passes it on. And secondly, the purpose is so that we will be more like him and better able to serve him in this world. One day all these things are gone. But until then, until then, we look up. We look up and see that all of it is a part of us being a body working together to glorify God. A temple growing so that God can dwell in us. And you look at the, the western wall, the wailing wall of the temple. Some of you have been there. Huge and massive. And even though those blocks are so much larger, they were still intricately carved and chipped and filed to fit together. And it stood like that for over 2,000 years. And we will be God's dwelling place forever. Forever. So you can put what you want on your profile. What does God say about us? A citizens, family, temple. The two greatest evidences that Christianity is true, we read in the Bible, is our love for one another. And our unity, John 13, John 17, 
By this shall all men know you're my disciples. If you love one another. And Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. And then the world will know that you sent me. And if I'm Satan, I'm going to work awfully hard to make sure Christians don't love each other. And they're divided. That's why we must work extra hard to see the big picture. And to love one another, even though we may disagree. And to love one another, even though we struggle. We give sacrificially. We unite lovingly. We expect nothing in return. We have no agenda, only a vision. I've worked with a lot of people and been involved with a lot of people with agendas. It'll wear you out. But vision energizes, changes the world. And so powerful is our unity that even the gates of hell can't touch this. The most beautiful part of all this, of course, is that God wants us to know him as father, to be part of the household. When I was over at Bryan College, we, one of our students was an older, older student. He uh, had his third child, little Tammy, born at Erlanger Hospital in Chattanooga. And she, after she was born, they discovered that she had a very serious extreme form of meningitis, and they didn't expect her to live through the night. And Tom and Sandy were devastated. And Tom, they finally let Tom back in to see little Tammy. By the way, if I forget to say this, she's survived and she's doing well. Okay, so. All the parents come up, what happened, what happened? Okay. But um, he went back and saw little, little Tammy, her arms strapped down, the IV in the top of her head, her little eyes just so puffy. From the crying and the screaming, from all the pain that she had in her body, and it was inflicted by the doctors trying to do something. And Tom said he looked at her, and he cried out to God, give me her disease, please. Give me that disease. Why her? Give me her disease. And every parent in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You do it in a heartbeat. Give it to me. And Tom says, it was that moment that I realized why God sent Jesus. Theologically, we can talk about all that happened legally and us rebelling against God and that price being paid. But the motivation is the heart of a father. Sacrificing everything for children, for a child. Hence, the prodigal son's father. Hence, we call him father. And for the Gentiles to know that, and for the Jewish believers to know that, and for us to know that. So important. So when you come to Christ, it's not like, all right, I'm yours. We come to Christ. We cry, Abba, Father. Isn't that awesome? That will change your life. It will change the world change the world. Well, let me wrap up with some things to think about. First, do I really find my identity in Christ? What will people say about me when they talk about me? Tell me about Steve. Tell me about Sophie or Ellen or Michael. 
Will they say things about you that indicate that you identify and demonstrate that you belong to God, to Christ? How do you self-identify? Are we allowing the world to determine who we are and how we live? Secondly, is my faith something I do or who I am? Is my faith something that I do or is it who I am? Really? Thirdly, how am I growing together with other followers of Christ? We need that desperately. I'm very involved in men's ministry and the discipleship. It's just something I've done for years and years. I meet with a group of business leaders, two of them. We go to Cracker Barrel. Anybody will come to Cracker Barrel for breakfast. But to sit across the table and talk to a, a man who's been to church his whole life. And one of them said this to me. He says, I know I've been to church, been to Sunday school and all that. And, and we're sitting at, lo- at breakfast here and you asked me about how Christ makes a difference in my life whether I'm looking at pornography, how I'm treating my wife and children, and my life was rocked because I had to answer. Because you can go through your whole Christian life and not have to answer those questions. I have to be accountable for them. Just showing up and writing a check is okay. We need each other desperately. That's how we grow. That's how we grow into what God desires that we become. And do I sincerely sense God's presence in me, with me. These are takeaways, things to think about, things to pray about. And that's why you're in this body, I think. Because God so desperately wants you to be his son's daughter, to use you, and to make you into the kind of person that's going to change the world. The world? Yeah, the world. Because when one of us suffers... When one of us prospers, we're all in this together for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. I thank you that Jesus came to die for us. That the heart of our Father was so broken by our sin that you paid the ultimate sacrifice that we might be forgiven and become your children. I pray, Father, for every person listening to my voice now that they will affirm and express to you their love as their father. And if they can't, Father, that your spirit will work even now to bring them to you. Use us together, Father, to grow together, to go counterculturally in how we live. For your glory, we pray. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling right now. I pray, Father, that you will protect, love them, And whatever blood is shed, Father, let the blood of the martyrs cover the soil and give birth to new believers by the hundreds of thousands and millions. Thank you that we can be a part of that through our prayers, through our love. Dismiss us, Father, with your presence, we pray, to serve you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you, everyone. Enjoy this day. You're dismissed.